The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Aldana Hayek, a cross-asset reporter with Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, the magic number is 1.1%. That's how much the U.S. economy grew in the first quarter, according to the government's first estimate. That's down from growth of 2.6% at the end of last year and quite a bit lower than the 1.9% that economists had estimated in a Bloomberg survey. So is this it? Is that looming recession we've been hearing about more or less since the last recession, is it finally upon us? And if so, how bad could it get? We're going to pick the brain of a senior economist at a major U.S. bank. But, Vildana, first, I have a very important question for you. You always have an important question for me. This is a divisive question this time of year. Okay. It's playoff time. But the question is, hockey or (laughs) basketball? Hockey, obviously. Hockey, really? But the Sabres are out. Yeah. Right? So, They're out. I don't actually watch that much of it. So I just what bandwagon are you on? What my husband tells me. Okay. The <laughs> Wait, 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 wait. What You just do what your husband tells you? No, no. What? Just when it comes to... No. <laughs> That's not what I What meant. the heck? <laughs> I mean, the only knowledge I have of the NHL is what he tells, what, what, what he relays back to me. Okay. You have me flustered now. <laughs> um, I know that the Sabres are out, which is sad for our household, but... The yeah. Devils, are are they still in the play? Devils, indeed, are still alive. Oh, my just, gosh. Then that's who I'm rooting for. Just beat the Rangers. The Rangers. But Florida beat Boston? Right, you're exhausting my hockey knowledge. Oh, my gosh. Because okay. I was going to oh, say, so I'm, an, M- I'm an NBA guy. I, I uh, This is oh, like so you the don't best watch. time of year for me. I see, I see. Okay, okay. Um, but I wish the hockey would just end earlier. Like, I could get into it if they weren't competing at the same time with yeah. the NBA. Anyway, I don't know if there's a hockey team where our guest this week is based. She's in Charlotte. Is there a hockey team? Oh, there? yeah. Yeah? Who? I, I believe so. I don't know. No, well, let I me bring know. her let me, <laughs> let me bring her in. It's Sarah House, Senior Economist at Wells Fargo. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So I'm joining you from Charlotte. So our, our closest NHL team is in Raleigh. And the Hurricanes, I'm happy to say, are still in the playoffs. Oh, my gosh. She knows more than me and you. It's amazing that they play hockey in Carolina during basketball season at all. It's amazing that they play hockey in Florida at all. Yeah, true, true. I'm always amazed by that. Well, Sarah, hockey or basketball? The important question first. Hockey, for sure. Really? There you go. We beat, we beat you out. Um, okay, but Sarah, maybe you can just uh, start by telling us about your role at Wells Fargo. Sure. So I'm one of our team's senior economists. So I focus on the U.S. economy, specifically inflation and labor markets, look a lot at Fed policy, just given the importance of those two sectors there, but really just that broader focus on on the overall U.S. outlook. So, Sarah, that print for the first quarter GDP, surprising to you, more or less what you expected? How Walk us through how you're thinking about uh, what we know about the economy after that report. 
Yeah, so we're actually below consensus in part because you did get some pretty significant revisions to consumer spending in, in the days before the release. So we had taken down our, our consumer spending numbers. But I think in, in some ways it, it was surprising just the degree of the slowdown. So sort of bigger drag from, from inventories. But, you know, overall final demand from domestic purchasers was, was holding up. And so that's really kind of the better bellwether for underlying pace of, of economic activity, but we did see momentum slow over the quarter. And so we're a little less optimistic that we can maintain the the pace that we saw in in Q1 as we look out further into the year. Okay, so let's look out further into the year because I believe you and your team are anticipating a modest recession for later this year, starting later this year. So can you tell us what's behind that? Yeah, so we are in in the recession camp. We don't think it's going to be you know quite the doozy of of the past few recessions. But when we look at just the the degree of tightening that we've seen coming from the Fed and and really just the severity of inflation, we think that if the Fed's going to be really set on getting inflation anywhere close back to its two percent target, it's it's likely that we're going to see de- demand need to pull back, and so we are expecting a contraction later this year in spending. We're already starting to see some weakness coming out of the business investment side. And, and this is really a Fed engineered recession aimed at curtailing demand to some that inflation pressure. So even before the, the mess of March, we were already seeing credit conditions tighten just as the outlook was deteriorating. So we think that's going to be an important part of, of this slowdown. And not just the, the availability of credit, but just also the cost leading to businesses and households just getting a little bit more conservative. And you see it starting later this year and then continuing on into the first half of 2024, or how long can we expect it to actually be playing out? That's a good question. Yeah. So in, in, in our baseline forecast, so we have the economy tipping into recession around the third quarter and, and really things getting worse around Q4. So Q4 is, is kind of where we see the worst of it, um, but still spilling over a little bit in, into Q1. So we think it's likely to be kind of more of a, of a slow drag in, in terms of economic activity, just given that we, we also don't think the Fed's going to be riding to the rescue as, as soon as you do see that weakness. So the, the nature of the inflation that we're seeing right now, we think that the Fed's actually going to be pretty reluctant to, to ease policy, even as the economy is entering a recession. So we, we do think it's, it's likely to, to last a few quarters. You know, Sarah, there seems to be this sort of discrepancy uh, right now between the manufacturing side of the economy and the services side of the economy. Um, Manufacturing is very weak, you know, according to most of the purchasing manager indexes. uh, They're all coming in below 50, you know, that sort of dividing line between growth and contraction uh, for manufacturing. Services have been better, but they're still holding above that 50 signaling uh, growth in the service industries. I mean, obviously, the service side of the economy is way, way bigger than the manufacturing side. But I'm wondering how you think about that discrepancy. Is there, you know, the possibility that that manufacturing side is sort of a canary in the coal mine for, for the entire economy? Or, or how do you think about it? It's sort of, you know, one's growing, one's shrinking and, and what it means going forward. 
Yeah, so I think one important aspect of that manufacturing services divide in this cycle in particular is the nature of the crisis that we just came out of and and really what areas of the economy have done fairly well over the past few years and and which ones have struggled a little bit more to get back on on their feet. So, you know, what's so interesting about the the COVID recession is that it was a boon for manufacturing. So typically when you see a downturn, that tends to be some of the more cyclical items, um, you know, big ticket costs. And so consumers retrench more, but just given the nature of of the shock that we saw and the the demand that resulted in, in physical things over experience that was a huge benefit to the manufacturing sector. So we think some of this pullback is is cyclical. So it's in response to the the higher rate environment that we're seeing, businesses cutting back on on capital goods expenditures. But we also think it's a little bit of payback from some of that demand being pulled forward and and just really unsustainable levels of of activity and and demand for, for goods that, again, just benefited so much from the, the nature of the crisis. So I think there's a little bit of both in there that I think the the downturn that we've seen and not just the ISMs, but some of the hard data on manufacturing from, from the industrial production report is, is indicative of, you know, the conditions are, are getting harder. It's, it's harder for, for businesses to plan. They're cutting back on, on spending, but we think some of this is also um, just payback from, from what we saw in, in the pandemic years. And you mentioned the turmoil that we saw in the banking sector, and obviously that continues to play out. But I'm wondering how you're thinking about it. Like, is the worst behind us? And then how can we start to see credit tightening or credit crunch, whichever way you refer to it? Um, how can we see it starting to manifest in the economy? Yeah, so our baseline assumption is is the worst is over. You know, we saw obviously the Treasury, the Fed, the FDIC come out pretty strongly and swiftly to try and, and stem the, the issues surrounding the banking sector. You know, so for example, we have a, a new facility aimed at, at helping at helping banks with some of the securities that that have lost value. And so our working assumption is that we're, we're not in for, you know, an outright credit crisis, but we do think that on net, credit is going to be tighter ahead. So we had already seen credit tighten pretty substantially leading into March. So if you look at the senior loan officer survey, for example, that only went through the fourth quarter, we were seeing recessionary degrees of, of tightening across business loans, consumer loans, commercial real estate already. Now, we we don't have the next survey out quite yet, so we don't know exactly what, what the March events did to that. But you do have some data, for example, from the Dallas Fed that does a, a bi-quarterly version of this, and it showed marginally more more tightening. And so we think that it's it's that additional restraint on on credit flow. So we think maybe there's not a significant degree of, of additional tightening. I think that's consistent with what a number of financial conditions index, including the Bloomberg one, is is showing. But I think overall, um, we're looking at probably marginal more tightening as banks are just a little bit more conservative. There there's probably more angst around some of their funding costs and and what's happening with deposits. And so we think that that's going to lead to just slower credit growth across the economy. And that's going to weigh on activity. It's going to weigh on businesses' ability to expand, to to hire. And so we think it's it's going to be a a slow, kind of a slow burn as, as we move through the rest of this year. 
And you do point out in a recent note that credit spreads haven't exactly blown out. They did widen quite a bit after the the March bank turmoil. Um, they've closed up a little bit, you know, and for listeners who are unaware, that's basically the interest rate on corporate bonds, the spread above the interest rate on treasuries is what we're talking about. Should we expect some more widening if the economy is headed for a recession? And, and how bad would you expect that to get if so? And really to complicate the question even further, <laughs> how do you explain why credit spreads have remained fairly tame uh, in this environment? Yeah, so I think that it's it's possible that we'll, we'll see those credit spreads widen a little bit as you think you do see market participants get a little bit more concerned about the the path for, for the economy. So you know, we're a little bit more downbeat in, in our assessments of what we think is going to happen um, to the U.S. economy. You know, there, there still is this the soft landing camp floating around. So we think it's if we were to see that happen, I think you would see those those credit spreads widen. But I think in some ways that the fact that they haven't widened all already, it speaks to, you know, this is a pretty uncertain environment. So while we're in the recession camp, you know, there's a lot of unique factors about this cycle, which I think makes it very difficult to kind of pin down the timing of when uh, activity is likely to to slow more meaningfully and when you actually might get some of that more pressure on on corporations and their profits and, and just pricing, therefore, being, being reflected in that worsening outlook for, for the business sector. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. And then how are you thinking about what's going on with the jobs market? Because we do have some more chatter of people saying the jobless claims have ticked up a little bit in recent weeks. Uh, The jolts number was a bit more surprising than people had thought. So how are you starting to think about what's going on in the jobs market? Yeah, so our view of, of the jobs market is that overall, the market remains very strong, but the direction here is, is very important. So if you look across a whole host of labor market indicators, the direction is is deteriorating. So you can see that certainly from the demand side with those job openings down 20% from their peak. You can see it in terms of the jobless claims, so still at exceptionally low levels, but we have seen them trend higher over the past Last few months after being you know, more or less stable through 2022. And same thing with hiring plans. So we've seen weakening across the, the PMIs, whether you're looking at the ISM versions or some of the regional Fed employment components in, in their surveys, but also just the small business uh, hiring plan. So that's been an area where small businesses have been the ones that have had the hardest time getting labor in in this economy over the past few years. But we're seeing those hiring plans dial back pretty markedly here. And in fact, they're they're lower than at any point, barring just the the throes of the pandemic since about 2017. So you're seeing the the demand indicators come down. Supplies coming back a little bit, and that's helping prop up the overall level of of non-farm employment and the, the pace of hiring. But even then, we've seen it decelerate over over the past year, and we think we're going to see a, a, a further downturn here in in the coming months. 
So I think when we hear the word recession, you know, dun, 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 people tend to think of, you know, double digit unemployment, something really nasty. I don't get the impression that's what you're bracing for, though. How, how bad do you think that unemployment rate could get from here? We're not bracing for a huge spike in, in the unemployment rate. And part of that has to do with the fact that we're, we're not thinking this is going to be a downturn like we saw in 2008, 2009, or the, the acute downturn that we saw in, in 2020. So our, our GDP contraction, we're, we're looking for basically a peak to trough decline of, you know, roughly 1%. But even when we look at the increase in the unemployment rate, so we're only expecting that to go up to about 5.1%. So if realized that would actually be the smallest increase in an, in the unemployment rate over a recession. And I think part of that reflects the, the fact that it's, it's not a super severe downturn. Um, but also there are still industries like leisure and hospitality that are, are catching up on on hiring. And so that's going to have an impact in terms of perhaps the, the degree of, of output cuts, but you know, those are, are less you know, lower productivity jobs. And so that's going to help there. But then there's also a supply consideration here. So just the fact that um, one, employers are already pretty desperate to hire. They might be a little bit more conservative in, in terms of laying off workers, just given how hard it's been to get workers in the first place, not just over the past two years, but in the, the years preceding the the COVID recession. And then also just the inflows into the labor force are are much, much slower than what we've had in in prior decades, just given population trends. So I think just the normal inflows that we'd be seeing into the labor market uh, in the coming years, that's going to limit how high you see that unemployment rate rise. So would that level of unemployment, a little over 5%, would that change the calculus for the Federal Reserve, do you think? Make them actually throw in the towel and and start cutting rates or, or no? So we do think probably once the unemployment rate rises a, a percentage point or so, we think at that point when it's very clear that the economy is in a recession, we do think that the Fed will, will start cutting. So this would still be a market departure from the reaction function of, of prior cycles. So for example, if you go look at the, the 2007 cutting cycle, so they began to cut rates when the unemployment rate had only ticked up about a, a tenth or, or two. So the fact that the Fed is likely to wait until unemployment has risen a full percentage point, which is, you know, pretty well known that it, it usually only takes about half a percentage point and you're, you're definitely in a recession. I think that's, that's a big change in the Fed's reaction. So we don't think that they'll, you know, completely look through the rise in unemployment, but we think that they will drag their feet because they want to make sure that you are seeing slack in the labor market come back, but also weakening demand. That's going to be enough to, Put down, put enough downward pressure on inflation where you're going to get back somewhere at least close to to two percent. And what about before we see any potential cuts? Like, what are you expecting from the Fed for the remainder of the year? Because I I was speaking with a bunch of money managers earlier this week, and a bunch of them are expecting the Fed to also raise rates at their June meeting, even though it's not something that the market is exactly pricing in right now. What is your team? projecting in terms of what we're getting from the Fed before any potential cuts? Yeah, so our, our baseline expectation is that they they hold during June and they remain on hold for for the following few meetings and that May is, is likely the end of, of the hiking cycle. And with that, I think that comes from the fact that you do see a number of Fed officials, I think, getting increasingly nervous about how much they've done 
lack of certainty over what the impact of the increases are on the banking sector, what it means for for credit growth and therefore the economy ahead. So I think just given the the rapid degree of tightening that we've seen and the fact that you know Fed officials they they know that policy acts with the lag, they want to see how how that affects. So I think it's likely that we'll see the Fed on on hold for an extended period. And then our baseline assumption is that then they then they cut, but I think if we continue to see spending continue to grow. If we see the jobs market remain very strong, resilient, you don't really see that meaningful increase in in unemployment and inflation remains sticky. You might hear a lot more conversations about, well, maybe the next move is is actually another hike rather than the next move being a cut. So the one thing that we really haven't touched on so far is your outlook on inflation. I think the one thing everybody can agree on is it's just not coming down fast enough. <laughs> so what are you expecting in terms of the inflation rate coming down and, and to what level? Yeah, so our expectations are, are that we are going to see some meaningful improvement here over the coming month. So I think some of the, the increases we saw in the first quarter might have to do with a little bit of a residual seasonality. So you tend to see more price increases at the start of the year and, and maybe just the seasonals not quite catching up with that. And I think also some of the momentum we've seen in inflation, you have to remember a lot of that came through revisions to those seasonal factors. So showing that Q4 was was actually a lot stronger than it was. So as we think ahead, I think there's some technical reasons why we might get a little bit more of, of a clear improvement on the inflation side over the next few months as those, those seasonals uh, will actually lend a, l- a little bit more of a depressing effect to some of the readings coming up. But then I think also just where we are in, in the economy and, and the growth cycle. So our expectations are that you're starting to see the impact of the weaker housing market start to show up in, in these official inflation measures. I think we got a little bit of a taste of that in March. March, maybe it, it overstated the, the pace of decline, but I think that's set to, to gather momentum. Thus far, the improvement in inflation has been pretty narrow. It's been largely energy and, and vehicles, but I think that there's certainly more room for, for that uh, vehicle disinflation to pick up, but also broader goods as we have seen supply chains correct. And also just consumers are getting more choosy and their their finances are squeezed. And so they just don't have that that same degree of, of purchasing power. Just they're they're not able to just accept the, the same degree of higher prices that we've seen. So we think that that's going to be an important part in other goods, but also even some services, including uh, some of the more discretionary services like travel that can also reprice pretty quickly as compared to other parts of, of the service sector, like medical care, for, for example. So we have core inflation coming down, um, but still looking pretty high when, when we get to the end of the year. So core PC, probably somewhere close to three, three and a half percent on, on a year over year basis. So I think progress, but still unacceptably high. And, and I think what will, will put the Fed in, in a pretty tough spot is they're seeing that labor market deteriorate, but inflation still running uncomfortably high. So what does the Fed do? So you guys are projecting cuts, obviously, towards the end of the year. But if inflation is still at three and a half, it, you know, it does put them in a bind, as you say. So what what do they do in, in that instance? Like maybe you can put yourself in their mindset and think about how they might be thinking about it. 
Yeah, so I think given what we've seen in terms of the discussions and and how frequently you're seeing officials, including Chair Powell, harken back to the 1970s, I think that they're going to to lean towards giving inflation a, a little bit more weight in this environment. That they're going to accept somewhat weaker labor labor market conditions and a higher un, unemployment rate, in part because we the labor market is contributing to this inflation environment. It is just not all the supply chains for physical goods, the lack of chips for, for autos production, but it comes down in large part to the fact that you're still seeing exceptionally strong labor cost growth. So we had a very strong Q1 employment cost index showing labor costs still running at close to 5% annualized. And that has the Fed pretty nervous about what's happening to some of the services components of of the core. And so I think that given that the labor market is contributing to to these inflationary pressures in a significant way, I think that the, the Fed looks through some of that labor market weakness if it means getting inflation at least back on track towards 2%. They don't need to hit 2% on the nose, but I think they want to see that conditions are in place for, uh, for it to slow further. Countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You know, Sarah, one of the biggest headlines that we saw this week that I think caught a lot of people off guard was uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen came out and said the quote unquote X date uh, for the debt ceiling is, uh, in her estimation, now June 1. In other words, uh, the U.S. government, if the debt ceiling's not raised by then, basically has the potential to run out of money uh, in early June. Then the Congressional Budget Office came out and kind of confirmed the timing more or less. I, I don't think to the day, but said early June was kind of the the target. So many people that we've talked to have kind of, I think, ignored this issue and hope hope it goes away <laughs> to some degree, which makes sense given how many times issues, issues come up and the brinkmanship goes down to the 11th hour and then there's a deal struck to, to avert the worst case scenario. I do wonder, though, if this time is different. I mean, politics are so toxic and so combative in the U.S. right now. Um, I'm assuming, you know, if you're forecasting a a shallow recession, that your base case is that this won't be an issue, that uh, this will get resolved before disaster strikes. But I'm wondering how you're thinking about it. How big of a risk is this? The U.S. doesn't get to a deal to increase the debt ceiling before that date. How big of a threat to the economy is that? I mean, my guess is it's a massive threat to the economy, but I'm just curious how you're thinking about it all. Yeah, so I think this is a significant threat. And we think despite, you know, it seems we go through this exercise, you know, at least every couple of years and it it eventually gets worked out and we've all become a bit numb to, to the debate. We think that this particular instance has 
the potential to be quite contentious. And it's reaching that X date and surpassing it would, it's a tail risk in our view, but it's a significant one, just given the, the catastrophic implications that, that it would, that it would likely have. So we think about just the, the split in Congress and, and even just the, some of the divisions within the GOP and how thin their margins are. You know, this could very likely come down to the wire. And I'd also point out that it doesn't even, we don't even have to actually reach that X date without a deal. But if it looks like it's coming down very close to to the end of that period, you could still see a lot of collateral damage in the economy, I think, particularly given the toxic political environment and perhaps, you know, some you know, not a lot of optimism that it, it might actually get done. So if you go back to 2011, for example, consumer confidence over the summer when we were having a very similar split in terms of Congress and, and the White House. Uh, you saw confidence plunge that summer. You saw the stock market decline essentially 17% in just a matter of weeks. So you don't even need to actually default on, on the debt for, I think, there to be real damage in the economy. And particularly given that the that the overall picture is is already getting increasingly fragile. So it wouldn't take a lot to kind of accelerate that downward momentum if you did see uh, another contentious debt ceiling debate. But then even an actual default, and it just seems like, well, the, the wheels really come off the bus at that point. <laughs> Game over. Yeah. <laughs> it's not funny. It's not. <laughs> I laugh because uh, uh, nervous laughter. Of course, yeah. At the apocalypse. Yeah, right. Yeah. The, the apoc- <laughs> apocalypse. <laughs> We can cry after the podcast is over. <laughs> well, Sarah House, senior economist at Wells Fargo, really uh, great to be able to pick your brain on all things about the economy uh, this week. Can't let you go just yet. We have to talk about the craziest things we saw in markets this week, which is our tradition. It I is. have a lame one and a good one. I guess do the lame Should one. Should I go with first? the lame one? Okay. Yes, yes. It's actually from my sister, who's our new Craziest Things correspondent. Oh my correspondent. gosh, we're going to have to put her on the payroll here. Yeah, we will, because she keeps texting me all the time, like crazy stuff she saw. Yeah. But it's a little bit lame. Anyway, she said um, this was the craziest thing she saw. Wendy's is putting their chili with beans into grocery stores at four ninety nine a can. Four ninety nine for a can of chili. With, from Wendy's. With beans. With beans and beef. And apparently they started making the chili because... They had a lot of leftover hamburger meat, and they didn't want to waste it. Really? Yeah. Huh. Anyway, it's a little lame, I'll admit. I like it. I like it, yeah. Okay. Tell your, commend your sister. sister for me, yes. Fine, she's doing good. She's doing good work. Yeah, she is. She usually sends me some really good ones. Five bucks for a can of chili. I don't know I about know. that. Yeah. Maybe yeah. it's a super large can. I feel like it's probably <laughs> cheaper than that at Wendy's. We'll have to do some research on that. We can go to Wendy's. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get Frosties. <laughs> All right, sorry. How about you? You see anything crazy this week? Well, I one thing that stuck out to me was a comment from the ISM manufacturing index we got earlier this week, and I think it just did a really good job summing up just how much uncertainty that we are seeing in this economy, and how in some ways we're seeing things weaken, but in other ways hold up better. And it just speaks to I think the degree of uncertainty about where exactly the economy even is right now, let alone where it's it's going. So the the comment was we seem to be in a season of contrast contradictions. Business is slowing, but in some ways it isn't. Prices for some commodities are stabilizing, but not for others. Some product shortages are over, others aren't. Trucking is more plentiful, except when it isn't. There's uncertainty one day, but not the next. The next couple of months should provide answers or not. It's hard to make projections at the moment. (laughs) That's almost like a poem. 
<laughs> it is. It all it's like the shruggy man emoji at the end of the day. Like yes. That one Yeah. No one is they should have inserted the little shruggy emoji. I, the the pandemic I feel like broke everything. It it broke every chart. It it really just created this environment where no one can predict anything. Is that is that your sort of vibe these days, Sarah, that it's just forecasting is infinitely harder than it used to be before the pandemic? It's certainly gotten a lot harder and I think there's tremendous more uncertainty. And I think you see that, you know, even in our own forecast discussions, but amongst other economists, if you look at just the dispersion of estimates, if you look at the Fed and how they rank certainty around their own forecasts, it's at record highs. So I, I thought that summed up, I think, where where the overall state of, of the economy and economists are right now. All right. Well, my crazy thing is back in the crypto markets. I'm just going to read the lead of the Bloomberg story because it, 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 it sums it up so well. Well, this is an Ohio man photographed lounging in a bathtub full of dollar bills must serve four years in prison for stealing 713 Bitcoin from a computer device seized by the government in a case against his brother. So the brother got arrested for laundering money in uh, in the dark net uh, in a various crypto transactions. The IRS actually seized the brother's hard drive, which had what he thought were his Bitcoin wallet. But I guess the way this works is you really just store your private keys on the wallet. Mm -hmm. So the brother was able to, using the actual private keys, basically replicate the wallet on the hard drive and steal 713 Bitcoins right off of a hard drive. In when was it? Possession uh, by the IRS. 2020. So April 2020. Uh, Bitcoin was like eight or nine thousand dollars back then. He was. Uh, 2020 wasn't that low, wasn't? Oh, because we were coming out of March 2020 oh, okay. when it hit up. 713 Bitcoin uh, valued then at about 4.9 million. So I'll let you do the math there. But there were a bunch of other 487. Okay, what is it again? 4,877 digital huh, tokens valued at what? 4.9. Million? Million divided by Shoot, how do I put that into a calculator? We're doing math live on the podcast <laughs> here. Divided by 713. 13. What was the price of Bitcoin? 6,800. Really? It got that low in 2020? Yes, it was March 2020. Jeez, why didn't I buy? The, the best part is they seize the guy's phone and they find this picture of him lounging in a bathtub full of dollar bills. I thought that was pretty good. And uh, one of the things they said he did... He used 68 Bitcoin as collateral for a $1.2 million loan and spent that uh, loan to buy a luxury condo in Miami. Cleveland. Wow. Yeah. A luxury <laughs> condo <laughs> in Cleveland. Which who knew, I didn't even know they had luxury condos in Cleveland. I mean, I, LeBron had to live somewhere, so I guess maybe it's that building. But And they released the picture of the guy in the bathtub full of dollar bills. He looks very happy. I would be too. But, it, you know, if you're a real player, dollar, like at least 10s or 20s. And fill what the did bathtub he do? Up. He did just $1 bill? <laughs> just singles, yes. <laughs> That's good. So, anyway. That's a good story. Sarah House, so great to hear your perspective on everything. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. You can find us on Twitter. Follow me, at Vildana Hyrick. Mike Regan is at Reganonymous. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Stacey Wong, and our head of podcasts is Sage Bauman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.